Um, so we want to talk today about ministering with sensitivity and love. So my first thing to ask you, class, is what's the answer? Well, you're saying, uh, uh, wait a minute. Before I can give an answer, I need to know the question, of course. And if you want to minister sensitively to people, then you, you need to know where they're at spiritually. The Apostle Paul encourages that kind of sensitivity in our text when he says in verse 14, um, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That verse makes it obvious that one size doesn't fit all. Uh, we would be wrong if we encouraged the unruly who need a stronger word of correction or warning uh, to turn from their sin. At the same time, we would be very insensitive if we admonished the faint-hearted. They need encouragement, Paul says. And, of course, we would be hard-hearted to scold the weak, whom Paul says they need help. And then he wraps the whole thing in patience. And then, knowing our, our fallen human condition, the fact that we all tend to want to get even when we're wronged, Paul adds verse 15, see that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And so to sum up the message of those verses, Paul is saying that we, the Lord wants us to minister sensitively to one another and to live lovingly both in the church and in the world. Now there's a basic assumption behind Paul's words here that you might miss if I didn't mention it, and that is that every believer is a gifted believer priest, and God has given you a ministry to fulfill. Uh, Even if you're not so-called in the ministry, you're in the ministry. Uh, He has given you this ministry to fulfill. It's interesting that every text in the New Testament that talks about spiritual gifts emphasizes that every believer has at least one. For example, just picking one of those verses, 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so, if you know Christ, then the Holy Spirit has gifted you, and he wants you to use that gift serving the Lord. Now, some, of course are more gifted in ministry of service, practical kinds of things, whereas some are in speaking. Peter divides them into uh, those two categories in that text when you go on. But at the same time, all believers should be focused on the Great Commission, which is to make disciples of all people. And that means if you're a Christian and maybe your gift is more of a service gift still, I believe he wants you involved in the lives of others 
If they don't know Christ, you have something to give them, the gospel. If they do know Christ and they're, uh, even if they're older than you in the Lord, but especially if they're younger in the Lord, you can come alongside and help them to grow and understand how they can mature in their faith in Christ. And so our text is focusing, it's written to the entire body, brethren, Paul says, and how we can minister then sensitively to one another and how we can live lovingly both in the church and in the world. So let's look first at the ministry of sensitivity, and that's uh, in verse 14. And there are four aspects of it. The first one, Paul says, is admonish the unruly. And we looked at that extensively last week. Uh, Admonishing a disobedient brother or sister in Christ is frankly the ministry we all like to avoid. And we talked about that. That's the last thing I want to try to do. And um, I, I think we all, by nature, procrastinate on it. But it's a ministry of love. If you see someone veering toward destruction, then it's not loving to say, wow, he shouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. He's going to get hurt over there. No, you go to them. You come alongside them and you say, brother, sister, I, I'm concerned about where I see you're at. And in love, you try to restore them before they suffer the consequences of unrepentant sin and those they sin against uh, suffer those same consequences. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. If you missed that message last Sunday, I encourage you to uh, pick up either the printed or listen to the audio copy online. The second ministry of sensitivity Paul brings up is to encourage the faint-hearted. And that word faint-hearted in Greek is literally the little-souled. Um, it probably refers to a person who is easily discouraged or overwhelmed by stress. They, they just can't cope with some of the trials they're going through. It may refer, you remember in chapter 4, we saw that some were very concerned about their loved ones who had died before the Lord returned. And Paul dealt with that in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. In the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, this word was used to refer to those who were discouraged because of trials. Um, for example, in Exodus 6-9, it refers to the Hebrew slaves in Egypt uh, who did not listen to Moses when he tried to encourage them on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. And that word despondency is this word, little soul. Um, in Numbers 24 or 21-4, it refers in the New American Standard to the impatience, I think it, re- it means the discouragement of the people uh, due to all the wilderness wanderings that they had gone through. And then in Isaiah 35, 3 and 4, it exhorts, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Sounds a lot like our text here, doesn't it? Say to those with anxious heart, take courage Fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. And it is anxious hearts is the word translated little souled. They're the ones who need encouragement and strengthening. The Greek verb here translated encourage is also 
um, a rare verb in the New Testament. It's used only in 1 Thessalonians 2.11, twice in John 11, 19 and 31, to refer to those who had come to console Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus had died, and then here in our text. And then a noun form is used a couple of times in the New Testament also. But the nuance of it is uh, consoling or comforting or showing sympathy with a person in their trials. Now, of course, we should not encourage a person in self-pity, but if somebody's going through it, they need someone to come alongside and encourage them. Um, And I know it's awkward sometimes, especially if somebody has lost a loved one. What do you say? Well, often you don't say anything. You just be there, and it's your presence, your your support of being with them that helps. Joseph Bailey, who's now with the Lord, but I heard him speak once years ago. He was a very um, compassionate man, and he and his wife at different times had lost three sons in death, not all at once, but separately in different causes. And in a book he wrote on grieving, he said, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Now, going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Paul uses the same word, there are several things we can learn about this ministry of encouraging the faint-hearted. Um, Paul there writes, Just as you know how we were exhorting, and then the word encouraging is this word, and imploring each of you as a father with his own children so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. First note that this ministry must be personal. Paul talks about Uh, Each one, encouraging each one. And it means this, that every person is unique and every person has different needs. And and the picture Paul uses is a father with his children. And every sensitive father knows your children do not come as a blank slate into the world. Each child is wired differently differently. Um, some children you can give, you have to give a stern word in order to get their attention. They just are oblivious to anything except, you know, uh, a rebuke. On the other hand, other children are so sensitive that all you have to do is give them a stern glance and boy, they melt in tears and, you know, they're different. God made them different. And so to impact others for Christ, you have to be sensitive to know How is this person wired? How did God gift them so you can relate to them personally? 
Then secondly, this ministry, Paul says, should be done with deep concern and love. And again, the picture Paul uses of a father encouraging his own children. You know, every godly father cares deeply for his children. When they hurt, you hurt. When they're happy, you're happy. And your life is just bound up in that way with your children. And that's what Paul is talking about here of um, being connected in a way that you show deep concern and love for the person and you want God's best for them. Then thirdly, Paul says this ministry should be done with the goal of maturity in Christ. In other words, your goal is not just to help them feel better, although that's important, but you want them to grow in Christ through the trial they're going through. And uh, so, you know, Paul says here, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's the goal. And then fourth, when appropriate, direct the discouraged person to the hope and the promises of God's word. The next verse after 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, uh, Paul goes on and mentions how he says, for this reason... We also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And so the word of God is powerful, and you can use it when it's appropriate to do so in helping someone. Now I add, when appropriate, because as Joseph Bailey reminded us, sometimes people don't don't need the word. They they know the truth. Uh, There's just a gap at the moment between their experience of it and uh, where they're at, if they're grieving especially. But if you're talking to a believer who's maybe confused, discouraged by trials, he may need some understanding. He may need to understand from God's word or see examples of how God uses suffering in the lives of his people to grow their faith. And uh, he may need to know, if he's a new believer, some key verses that he could memorize and then meditate on, and you can direct him there sensitively. Um, The thing you want to convey is hope that God is sovereign over this trial he's in. God has not forgotten him. God has promised he'll never leave us nor forsake us in any situation. And so you want to try and convey that hope that the word of God gives us. So Paul says, first, admonish the unruly. But then if somebody's faint-hearted, they don't need admonishment. They need encouragement. Then he says, help the weak. And the weak could refer to people who are weak due to some disease or physical impairment or Uh, maybe weak financial hardship, but most likely, almost all scholars say it's referring to the spiritually weak. Um, It may be those who were struggling because, as we've seen in working through 1 Thessalonians, they were going through intense persecution. And some just probably uh, were having a hard time because of that. We also saw Paul exhorts them to... uh, sexual purity because they were coming out of a gross immoral culture and maybe some were weak 
because they uh, were tempted to go back into their old sins. We don't know. But uh, the weak person generally is someone who is new in the faith and they haven't yet learned to stand on their own with the Lord if they're in a hostile environment. When they're around Christians, they're doing great. They get back around the old crowd and they get easily influenced by their old old friends. Uh, the word translated help is literally hold on to. That's what it means. Or cleave to. Don't let them out of your sight or out of your grip. Um, the picture there to me, say, I, I'm the older brother in our family, but say uh, you're a younger brother and you got an older brother and there's a bully picking on you. Well, the older brother, if he's a good brother, is going to come and and hold on to you and defend you from that that bully. Or uh, another example, if you have a child who's not a strong swimmer and you take him in the deep end of the pool, you hang on to him. You you stay close. You don't ignore them and go off and and get uh, iced tea or something. You're you're right there with them because you know if you let go, they could go under. And so you hold on to them. And the same thing when there's a weak brother or sister in the in the Lord. Don't just go, oh, that's too bad, you know, he's back in the world. Uh, sorry to see that. No, go to them. Hang on to them if you can and help get them restored to the Lord. Now, I should mention, if a person has been a Christian for quite a while and they keep falling into the same sins over and over and when you talk to them, they say, well, I'm just weak, they're probably not weak. They probably fall into the first category. They're the unruly uh, that need admonishing. They, they need a stronger word of correction because they're being irresponsible. But a weak Christian is one, again, who's young in the faith. They just haven't yet grown strong. Uh, in Romans 15, 1 through 3, we see how Paul didn't condemn, but he accepted and cared for those who were weak in faith. He says there, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. That means building up in the faith. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus, as you know, is our good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, he tenderly cares for the little lambs in his flock. Isaiah chapter 40. That's a great chapter, by the way. If you haven't read it lately, read Isaiah 40. But it pictures in verse 11, Jesus. It says, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. That's a picture of our Savior in his gentleness. And then Isaiah 42.3, which is quoted in Matthew 12.20, says of Jesus, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. And so Jesus is a great example of helping or holding on to the weak, and as his church we should do that. If you see a new believer and they're struggling, come to their aid. Uh, Don't let them fall back into the world. And then finally, Paul says in sensitive ministry, be patient with everyone. 
So he kind of wraps the whole package in patience. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul describes biblical love, the first thing he says is, love is patient, love is kind. And that always trips me up. (laughs) You know, I don't need to go any further, thanks. I realize, ah, I'm not patient. I'm not loving. I'm not kind. I'm not loving. If I'm frustrated and angry, I'm not loving at that moment. And the Greek word for patience comes from a compound word that means long-tempered. So if you have a short fuse, you don't yet have biblical love perfected in your life. Biblical love is long-tempered. Um, as James 1.20 puts it, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And so as Christians, we've got to deal with our anger. Um, One way to do that in the family of God is just to picture the church as a family. Those of you who have uh, children still in diapers know children dirty their diapers, little kids. That's what they do. And sometimes they do it at inopportune moments, don't they? And when they do it, you don't chew them out and give them a lecture unless you're trying to potty train them. Uh, you, you just clean up the mess and you think, well, they're babies and they'll grow up. And, uh, you know, that that's how you deal with babies. And sometimes as a Christian, baby Christians are going to dirty their diapers in your presence. And you're going to go, oh, man, why don't they grow up? You know, well, they will. Just come alongside, help them out, get them on their feet, get them back on the path. They'll grow. And sometimes even a more mature Christian is going to do something that's going to offend you or wrong you. And then I think the way to deal with it is to think, you know, I am a fellow sinner. And God has been very merciful and patient with me. And thankfully, God hasn't zapped me every time I've goofed up, even as an older Christian. And so you're patient with that person. Now, that doesn't mean you don't need to go to the brother and talk to him and maybe clear up the offense that happened between you. But the way you do it is not to go and angrily chew him out, but rather with patience and kindness and love, you, you try and work through it. Colossians three twelve and 13 is a great verse, a great couple of verses that says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, so there's our stance. God chose us. He he loved us when we were unlovable. Here's what we do. We put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and here's the word, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone and then... Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. How did he forgive me? Buckets load. I mean, a lot. And so that's to be my stance toward others. So first point, we should minister sensitively to one another. And then Paul adds that the Lord wants us to live lovingly in the church and in the world. And here my focus is on verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, 
But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Biblical love seeks the highest good of the one love. That's the key to understand what love is. It always seeks the highest good of the one loved. And so Paul is saying here, we should live lovingly in the church, seeking the highest good of our brothers and sisters, and in the world, he adds, with all people. Uh, There's a negative and a positive side to this. Negatively, Paul says, love never retaliates for wrongs that are suffered. When he says, see that, again, it's directed to the entire church. And it means this. If you see a brother or sister who's trying to get even with somebody who wronged him or her, you need to come alongside. And that's where the admonishing may need to come in, where you kind of ask them, what are you doing? You know, that's not the way of the Lord. You point them to the way of the Lord which is to do good for that person. You know, the way of the Lord on this is so contrary to the world. You've probably seen the bumper sticker that says, don't get even, or don't get mad, I mean get even. You know, that's the world's way. Somebody wronged you, get even with them. Pay them back. God's way is be patient with everyone and don't get even, but rather do good to those who have wronged you. Wow, how contrary to the world can you get? Now, I need to point out that the most painful wrongs you will experience do not come from those people out there. They come from these people right here. You know, you kind of expect the world to get even or or to do you in. That's just the way the world operates. So when it happens, you go, well, that's the world. But when it's a brother or sister in Christ and you've trusted them and you know them and then they do something that hurts you, oh, that really, really hurts. And at such times, you have to be careful. Don't trade insult for insult. Don't go around telling others in the church how much that person hurt you and ruining their reputation Uh, don't, um, you know, go in the community and tell everybody how they wronged you or anything. Love does not repay evil for evil, Paul says. Now, it's easy to say that, but then it raises some questions. One question is, well, what about the biblical principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? I mean, doesn't that principle say we should do to the other person what he did to us? He's got it coming. Well, the short answer is no. That's not what that principle says. Um, Originally, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing was given in the Old Testament to restrict vengeance. In other words, it was given to the judges that in a case, they would not impose a greater penalty than the wrong that had been done and to prevent the person from taking vengeance into their own hands. They knew that there would be a proportionate, just penalty applied. Over time, what had happened was the Jewish scribes had distorted that principle into uh, an excuse or a, a license for personal revenge. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was speaking against the Pharisees' misapplication of that in Matthew 5, 
38 to 42, Jesus said, You have heard it sa- that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And then he adds in verse 44, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, those are some of the most radical words in the New Testament. Uh, But again, it raises some questions. Does that mean we're just supposed to be doormats? Uh, Does it mean we don't have a right, for example, to defend ourselves if somebody attacks us or one of our loved ones? Or does it mean we can't defend ourselves in, in court if somebody is wrongfully suing us and trying to take away our sustenance? Well, obviously I can't go into super depth in that, but let me just say I don't believe Jesus was advocating pacifism or that that we have no right to defend ourselves. I say that because the Bible gives us civil law and expects penalties to be exacted there and the law to defend law-abiding citizens. And it would not be loving to stand by and watch one of your loved ones being attacked and just go, well, turn the other cheek. Uh, No, I think that the loving thing is to come to their defense, even if It means suffering myself. Um, I don't believe there's anything wrong with protecting or defending yourself physically if somebody attacks you and comes at you physically. And then two, providing for our families is a responsibility of every uh, home household head. Paul says if we don't provide for our own, we're worse than an unbeliever and have denied the faith. And so... If somebody is wrongfully suing you and trying just to steal from you what you've worked hard to earn and save, I think you certainly should go to court to protect your family um, provision, your assets. I think rather what Jesus is emphasizing is we shouldn't be quick to stand up for our rights and uh, to stand up for our honor when somebody offends us. A slap on the right cheek, and assuming the slapper is right-handed, it wasn't a hook to the jaw. That would have hit you in the left cheek. It would have been a backhanded slap, and it was uh, a sign of insult. It was a dishonor to be slapped in the face. And Jesus is saying, don't respond, don't retaliate uh, in kind. Don't trade insult for insult. John Stott, in his commentary on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, says, He, Jesus, teaches not the irresponsibility which encourages evil, but the forbearance which renounces revenge. And then he sums it up. Jesus was not prohibiting the administration of justice, but rather forbidding us to take the law into our own hands. Uh, Leon Morris in his commentary suggests 
that the practice of non-retaliation by the early church, he says, it may have been responsible in some measure for the impact the early Christians made on the men of their day because it is so counter-cultural not to get even. So negatively then, we are not to get vengeance or get even with others. Positively, Paul says that love then seeks the highest good of others, and that is, of course, that God would be glorified in their lives. After commanding us not to repay evil for evil, Paul says in the last half of verse 15, but always seek after that which is good for another and for all people. Now, if you have a new international version, their translation here is uh, kind of pitiable. pitiable. Uh, it says, try to be kind. That's not what the, the verse is saying. Uh, the Greek word that is translated seek in other contexts is used to mean persecuted. So it means to go after something with a fair amount of intent and purpose. You know, you're you're expending some effort in pursuing something. And here it's not, of course, to persecute someone for evil, but rather pursue after that which is good for someone else. We might paraphrase it, rather than, than seek vengeance, go after the other person's highest good with a vengeance. You know, do all that you can do to, to seek their good. That's the idea. In 1 Peter 3.9, Peter says, Not returning evil for evil, or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, what is the good for every person? Well, the highest good for every person is that they come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and that their lives bring glory to him. If they already know Christ again and they're in sin, the highest good is that they would turn from their sin and again glorify Jesus with their lives. And so um, that should be our aim. If somebody wrongs us, whether it's a fellow Christian or an unbeliever, how can I help that person either, if they're a Christian, get right with the Lord and begin to walk with the Lord. If they're a non-Christian, How can my behavior right now help them see the reality of Jesus and come to faith in him? I'm going to conclude the message just with two stories. um, And they show how believers have put this text into action. One of them is by Watchman Nee, the late Chinese um, evangelist and church planter. In his little book, Sit, Walk, Stand, he tells the story of a Chinese farmer. And if you've been over to that part of the world, you know that sometimes they terrace farm where they they build terraces with a dike and then they plant rice or whatever. Well, this farmer had a higher terrace and he had to pump the water with a treadmill. He didn't have an electric pump, so he had to work hard on a treadmill to get the water up to his farm, to his field. The neighbor below him one night cut a hole in his dike and let all the water that he had worked so hard to pump flow down into his fields below. Well, he repaired it, pumped water again, same thing happened over 
and over again. There was this, quote, mysterious break in the dike, and uh, the guy below was taking advantage of him. Well, he went to his church and asked for counsel on what to do. And after praying, the brothers in his church said, first pump water for their for his farm below, his fields, and then pump your own. And he started doing that, and he didn't have any more breaks in the dike. Well, after a while, the, the neighbor was so amazed by the Christian's behavior that he came to him and said, why, why are you doing this? At which point he told him about Jesus, and eventually that man came to faith in Christ. One other story took place in the Middle East, I think over a century ago. Um, there was a time of horrible war and brutality. It's been called genocide by some. But a Muslim soldier was pursuing a Christian man and his Christian sister, um, and he finally cornered them. And in front of the sister, he mercilessly shot her brother and killed him and then let her go. But she had witnessed this horrible murder of her brother. Later, she was working in a hospital as a military nurse when this man who had killed her brother was brought in, and he was in a very critical condition. And if she had just neglected him, he would have died. And so a battle raged within her. Should I just ignore that guy? He's got it coming. Or should I nurse him back to health? And inside a still small voice of the Holy Spirit, I think, whispered, kindness, kindness. And so she nursed him back to health. Uh, Later, the soldier recognized her and he asked her one day, why didn't you let me die? And she said, well, I'm a follower of Jesus and he commanded us to love our enemies. And this Muslim soldier was silent for a long time and then finally he said, I never knew that anyone could have such a faith. If that's what it does, tell me more about it. I want it. And so both those stories, I think, illustrate what Paul is saying in our text, that we are to minister sensitively and lovingly to one another in the church, but also to minister lovingly to those in the world who may do us wrong, to seek their good. And their highest good is that they would come to know Jesus, our Savior. And here's what Paul says about our Savior in Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for us, or for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But, aren't you glad for all these buts in Scripture? But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, we were thumbing our nose at God. We were in his face saying, go away. Christ died for us. There's the love of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we often fall short of this standard which is nothing less than supernatural. 
I pray that you would fill us, so fill us with the love of Christ that it would just spill out all around us on others, especially when we're wronged, that we would do right to that person that wronged us. I pray that we would minister sensitively in the body of Christ one to another to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with everyone, and that, Lord, we would never repay evil for evil to anyone, but rather do that which is good for one another and for all people to show the love of Christ in practical good deeds that you would be exalted in this church and in this community. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to fill us. If any right here this morning, Lord, are dealing with anger and vengeance towards someone who's wronged them with hurt, I pray that you would give them the love of Christ overflowing to go to that person and show by practical good deeds the Savior who died for us when we were yet sinners. I ask, Lord, if any are here who have never responded to the love of Christ, that they would not leave this gathering this morning without trusting in Jesus to be the one to bear their sin on the cross. So we ask you to work in our midst. 